good morning, Soul City Church. How you doing, 11 o'clock? Doing awesome? Uh, empty seating here. That's awesome. Great to see you. My name is Jarrett Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here, and welcome to Skinner Elementary. What a great gift for our neighbors uh, to give to us for this month here in our children's theater as well. I thought since we were at school, I should take attendance. So if you'll just sit tight, we're going to do that. Now, that would, be, that would take a long time. Uh, all right, so we are kicking off a brand new teaching series called Neighboring. For this whole month of May, we're going to be looking at what it means to not only be a good neighbor, what it means to be a great neighbor. And my hope is over the course of this month that you will see neighbor less as a noun and more as a verb, that God has put a calling on your life to neighbor well, to really neighbor well, wherever it is that you live, wherever it is that God has you, here in the city or outside the city, wherever that may be. And this whole month's teaching is actually going to culminate Memorial Day weekend uh, with something we are very, very excited to do, and it's our Love Works Weekend. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to grab a Bible right now and then grab the card that should be with it. So go ahead. We're going to open this in a minute, but grab the card that's with the Bible right now. It looks just like this. It says neighboring on it right under your seat. How amazing that our incredible volunteers already put that there for you. And this is going to serve two purposes. First, it's going to be a fan to cool you off because there is no central. Just like the old days, back at school, the gym's going to be hot. Uh, but more than a fan, it actually gives you information about what's going to happen Memorial Day weekend. We are not going to be meeting here. We're not going to have an official Sunday gathering like this. Rather, we are going to be all over the city on Saturday and Sunday and even some into Monday of that weekend, and we are going to be demonstrating God's love by being good and great neighbors all across the city. We're going to have over 3,500 volunteer hours in one weekend alone as we serve with incredible partners here in the city. So we're not going to do this. We're going to do that. And I want you to know about it now because you have to sign up to serve where you're going to serve. There's awesome opportunities for friends, for small groups, for families to actually serve together. You can go online to loveworks.org slash neighboring. All the information's on there. And sign up. I would encourage you to do it today because those spots are going to fill. And there's all kinds of different time slots and locations. And these are incredible ministries and partners that we're privileged to work alongside of. And so this is going to be a really fun way for us to take a field trip at the end of the month. So we will not be here. We will be all over the city. Does that make sense? You got that? I think this month is going to be, if you don't mind me saying, a may zine. <laughs> Doug, see what I did there, Doug? All right, all right, so that's my last dad joke of the day. Here's what I want us to get into is how much we love this city. Our city is so fun because our city is really not a city so much as it is a bunch of neighborhoods, and we love our neighborhoods. This city has no problem loving itself. We brag on ourselves. We're proud of ourselves. We celebrate sports victories from over 20 years ago. We have no problem with pride when it comes to this city. And specifically, it's our neighborhoods that make us so dynamic and so diverse. And I don't know if you know how many official, as of last count, Chicago neighborhoods there are. Does anyone know how many neighborhoods there are in Chicago? There's 77 unique neighborhoods in Chicago. But what's interesting is that's kind of the official count of the neighborhoods. There's actually, they estimate, over 200 unique communities within those 77 neighborhoods. So we have 77 neighborhoods, but even in a neighborhood, you know that there's multiple neighborhoods in that neighborhood, don't you? There's over 200 unique dynamic communities, and those kind of vary, and that number varies, you know, with people moving in and people moving out and demographic studies, and then also that number, 
where it changes all the time because of creative copywriting by real estate agents. They love to make up new neighborhoods uh, for you to live in. So that kind of changes, but you get the idea that we are dynamic because of the diversity of our neighborhoods. We are a city that loves its neighborhoods, and yet I would say, and maybe you would agree, that we have a lot to learn when it comes to loving our neighbors. We love our neighborhoods, but how are we doing it actually loving our neighbors? Think about it for a second. How can a city so rich in diversity still be so ridiculously divided? As a city, and we all know the invisible lines that divide up communities and neighborhoods that people cross, don't cross. We already know that we actually have one of the last real segregated great cities in this country. How can that be? How can a city with so much history continue to repeat some of the same patterns that got us into some of the mess that we're in today? How can a city so rich in resources still have over 1.3 million people living below the poverty line in and around our city. How can that be that we can be so rich in resources and yet have so many folks living in poverty around us? How can we be home to some of the nation's best and brightest and yet we continue to fail our children with a public education system that is bogged down in bureaucracy? We have some of the greatest teachers and administrators in the world and we keep tying their hands and we keep failing our children. How can that be in the great city of Chicago? How can it be in a city that is so vibrant and so alive and so beautiful that last year we saw the highest number of homicides in a long, long time, most in any city in the country, 716 murders in our city alone. That's more than New York and LA combined. How can that be? How can it be that I pay so much in property taxes and somehow still pay more in parking tickets? How can, we're gonna get into it this month and we're gonna look at how we can be about specific solutions to these problems. The question we have to really ask ourselves is how can you love your neighborhood without loving your neighbor? How can you say you love your neighborhood if you don't know and if you don't love your neighbors, the people, and I don't know if you know this, but what makes up a neighborhood is, wait for it, neighbors. See, we tend to see neighborhoods like a list of amenities custom tailored to our preferences. Oh, I like this neighborhood because it has this. Oh, I like this neighborhood because of the restaurants. Oh, I like this neighborhood because it's close to the lake. We love all of our little list of amenities, but that's actually not what makes up a great neighborhood. What makes a great neighborhood is great neighbors. It's people who know each other, care for each other, see each other, and love each other. What if where you live is actually where God has you for a reason? And what if it's not all about you? What if it's actually about the people that God has placed in proximity to you for a purpose? What if God has you where he has you so that you can be a great neighbor? And could it be that the solutions for our city aren't going to come from some great policy, as important as those are, some great elected as official, as important as those are, but they're actually going to come from ordinary, everyday people like you and me answering the fundamental question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor and how can I know them and love them like God 
does. That's what we're going to look at today. And my hope is over the course of our time today that you will not only have a greater love for this city or for your neighborhood, but more importantly, you'll have a greater love for your neighbor and a greater vision for what God might be calling you to where you live. So if you would, please take that Bible and open it to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at that fundamental question, who is my neighbor? Luke chapter 10, it's on page 725. If you don't have a Bible, again, we have those for you. In case you don't already have it memorized, you can just go to page 725 in the gray Bible, page 725, Luke 10, 25. Quick context into where we're coming out in the story of Jesus. He's already well into his public ministry Uh, The last three years of his life of teaching and miracles and preparing the world, preparing himself actually for the cross and an empty tomb. That's kind of right where we catch Jesus as midstream in the middle of that. And we catch him in this particular moment in the midst of a conversation, although as we'll see in a minute, it's more of a confrontation that the religious leaders of the day were having with Jesus. He had lots of scuffles with religious leaders. They did not appreciate Jesus. They saw him as a threat and they wanted to pull the rug out from under his authority because it threatened theirs. And they'd worked so hard to establish their authority, their spiritual authority in the community. And so they did not like Jesus. So oftentimes they would corner him with questions and try and trick him and trap him into uh, losing kind of his uh, appeal and his authority in the community. This is one of those moments, Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that means a religious leader, a religious teacher, a Pharisee, a, a religious leader, an expert in the law stood up to, what's the word, stood up to? test Jesus. So do you see the motive and intention already going on in the situation? He wasn't there to ask a spiritually curious question. He wasn't there to ask a question for a friend. He was there to test Jesus and his authority. So he was there to test Jesus. And he stood up and he said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now pause. This is a significant question. He's asking, what do I have to do to have this kind of life that you keep talking about? Did you know that in the gospel accounts, as far as I can tell in my study and preparing for our time here today, did you know that there were 183 unique questions asked of Jesus over the course of his life? 183 distinct, unique questions that were directly asked to Jesus. This is one of them. Do you want to take a guess at how many of those questions he actually answered with a straightforward answer? <laughs> you want to just take a guess? Three Out of 183 questions that were asked to Jesus, only three did he give a direct answer to. If you're keeping score at home, that's one and a half percent that he actually gave an answer to. I mean, this works great if you're Jesus. It would not work great in a school setting like this to answer every teacher's question with a question like, I don't know, what do you think the capital of New Hampshire is? Teachers don't really like that. You don't tend to get good grades, but it works for Jesus. And that's exactly what he does here in this moment. He Look what he does in verse 26. He answers the question with a question. He says, well, what's written in the law? You know the law. You're an expert in the law. What does the law say? How do you, what's the word? How do you Read it. Now, that word read actually means interpret it. How do you interpret the law? So what Jesus is asking him is, okay, you're an expert in the law. You've read, you understand, you've read it all, memorized most of it, you understand it, but what does it mean to you? In other words, what Jesus is asking him is, how do you see the world in light of what you know about God? How do you see the world? How do you interpret it? How do you read it? And so he answers, verse 27, wisely. The religious leader answers the question this way. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Does that sound familiar? That's the prayer of the Shema, the central prayer 
of the Jewish faith, to love God with all of who you are. And he adds on something else maybe you've heard before. And love your who? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, he's not the first person to say this. My hunch is that he was around another situation like this where another religious leader cornered Jesus and said, Jesus, trying to test him, tell us what the greatest commandment is. And instead of answering directly, Jesus gave not only one, but two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And by giving those two answers, Jesus actually made them inseparably one. You can't love God and not love your neighbor. And you can't ever really love your neighbor without having the love of God within you. So again, Jesus not necessarily answering directly, but this guy maybe heard that. So he thought, oh, I got you. I remember what you said the last time when you stuck my friend. So I'm gonna say the answer that I heard you say then. Now look what Jesus says, verse 28. Good job. Well done. A plus. You answered correctly. You, you passed the test. Good job. And I love what he says. His little homework is, do this and you'll live. Now that's pretty incredible. That's very simple. Do this and you will will have that kind of life you keep hearing me talk about. If you love God with all of who you are and you love others like you take care of and love yourself, you will experience real life with God. It's that simple. Do this and you will live. You will live life to the fullest if you would love God and love others. If only we did that. If only we got that one right. If only we could get that one right. But instead what we, well, at least what I tend to do, maybe you would say you do the same. Instead, what I tend to do is I don't do just that. What I often do with God is justify why I don't just do that. I try and say, well, God, you don't understand. They're really complicated. Well, God, you can't expect me to love my boss. Have you met my boss, God? Well, God, you can't expect me to love you with all of who I am. You mean all of my resources? You mean time? You mean when they say stick around and help stack chairs afterwards, that means me? Lord, oh, Lord, you don't understand. I have a full, busy life. And so we tend to justify ourselves rather than just doing what God has invited us to do. And that's what this guy does right here. Verse 29, but he wanted to, what's the word? He wanted to? justify himself like I so often do, like maybe you do as well. So this is what he does. He tries to justify himself by adding a qualifier to the conversation. He says, okay, okay, you say to love my neighbor. Okay, so who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now, what he did by asking that question was reveal how he sees the world. Because the way he sees the world is who's in and who's out. Who do I have to love? Who do I not have to love? Who am I obligated to care about and who do I not have to care about? You see, he showed his worldview right there with that one question. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to show this kind of love to? And rather than answering that question with an answer, what does Jesus do? He tells a story. He doesn't even answer directly. He goes and tells a story, an incredible, powerful, transformational story. Verse 30, Jesus said in reply to this, a man was going down from Jerusalem. So he just starts telling a story. He doesn't even say he's going to tell a story. He just starts telling a story. So they're like trying to catch up and take notes. And he's just telling a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now this is, this is Jesus kind of gets into like the gritty details of an intense story right off the bat. It says that there's a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by thieves and robbers. 
They not only stole his stuff, they stole his dignity. They left him naked, half dead on the side of the road. Paints a very bleak, powerful picture, but one that they would immediately recognize because they knew the context of the story that Jesus was talking about. There was a road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's called the Jericho Road. I've actually been there and stood on that road. Uh, This is a picture of it. You can see kind of to the left. See that little winding little road? It is a long road that goes from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and it's not a big, wide thoroughfare. Still isn't to this day. And a lot of people knew about that road because if you ever had to go to Jericho, you had to travel it. And again, not very wide. You're familiar with Lakeshore Drive. You've all been on Lakeshore Drive, right? This is the running path next to Lakeshore Drive. That's how, <laughs> only with fewer uh, rollerbladers. So uh, that's, that's the Jericho Road. It's very narrow, like a car's length at best. And it was known for thieves and robbers that would hide and hang out because you can tell from the picture, there's lots of little nooks and crannies on the Jericho Road, little hills, cliffs, caves tucked into the side where someone could wait around a corner and when someone passed by, attack them, rob them, steal them, even kill them. This was so well known that it gained a reputation in its community. You know how we name our freeways, like we have the Kennedy, the Eisenhower, the Stevenson. Do you know what they named the Jericho Road? It was called the way of blood. Yeah. Like, put that into Google Maps. I mean, that was the name of the road, the way of blood, because so many people had been attacked, robbed, even murdered on the way of blood. And so what Jesus does is he paints a picture for them that they would immediately understand the context to. And then Jesus goes into a familiar storytelling style that he's used before. He uses sets of three and lots of times you'll see Jesus tell a story and there'll be three sets, three things to pay attention to. And even within this, we're gonna see three characters in the story. And within each of those characters, there's three things we have to pay attention that each of them do. So this is not just Jesus making this up. This is masterful storytelling. And so within each of these characters, there's three things that we have to pay attention. First is what do they see? Where do they go and what do they do? What do they see? Where do they go? And then what do they do? So I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to say the word see. Go ahead and say it. Say see, See. go, Go. do. So I want you to remember that pattern. See, go, and do. And I want you to look for that in each of these three characters Jesus is about to introduce us to. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down that same road, that Jericho road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now pause before we get to our little patterns you could probably already see here. You gotta love that in a room full of priests and Pharisees, the first character Jesus chooses is a priest. He knows how to work a room. All right, so he lets them know, oh, let me know. I'm gonna let you know who doesn't get it right right out the bat. And it's a priest, it's a religious leader, a religious person. Now, let's look at the pattern that Jesus laid out for us. What does he see? Well, he sees the man on the side of the road, and what he really sees is a problem, more specifically, someone else's problem. Maybe he sees a statistic, another story. Oh, you should have known, Jericho Road, you shouldn't travel alone. Oh, you should have known, this is good to happen to you. Probably, it's probably your fault. He sees someone else's problem. Where does he go? Well, he travels to the other side of the road. He goes into the passing lane of other people's problems. And we all do that. Someone is having an issue, a problem, it's easy to just hop in the passing lane and go, I hope someone helps you out with that. Not my problem. What does he do? Nothing. This religious leader does absolutely nothing. Now, it could have been because 
Maybe he thought he would have gotten ceremonially unclean if he were to touch a sick person, a dying person. Maybe he thought this was a foreigner, worst of all, a Samaritan. And so if he were to touch this person, oh, then he would be unclean. They don't touch Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. Maybe he thought that there would be more robbers. This was a trap, you know, kind of waiting when he goes to help them. They'd jump out and get his stuff too. But for whatever his reasons were, regardless of his reasons, his heart is revealed by his reaction. We see what he sees, see where he goes, and what he does. Maybe because he's a religious person, maybe he prayed for the man on the side of the road while he walked by him. Oh, Lord, please help this man who is in so much trouble. Send someone his way, God, to help him. Lord, deliver him from all his pain and problems. Amen. Religious people are great at praying those kind of prayers, right? Praying for a solution, but not seeing themselves as such. All right, let's look at the next pattern. Verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now, quick word on Levites. Levites were a part of the religious leaders, but they're more like the, like the water boys or the equipment managers to the real religious leaders. They were on the team, but they didn't quite have all the authority. So they knew all of the religious rules and customs and regulations, but they didn't quite have all the authority of priests and Pharisees. And so we see the same guy come up on the side of the road and he sees him there. And so what does he see? Just like the religious leader before him, he sees a problem, someone else's problem. What, where does he actually go? Same thing. He gets in the passing lane of someone else's problem and assumes that someone else will come along to take care of it. What does he do? Just like the guy before him, he does absolutely nothing. does absolutely nothing. Maybe because he saw the person, the religious leader in front of him, you know, a superior in front of him walk by. And so he assumed, oh, if he's going to walk by him, I can walk by him too. Kind of let his disobedience run coverage for his own. This is easy to do. It's an easy posture, actually, if you think about our city. It's an easy posture to take when you think about the realities of our city and specifically when headlines hit home. It's really easy to watch or to read and say, oh, man, that's awful. I want to do something about that. I don't know what to do about that. I hope someone does something about that. I'm going to wait and see if someone does. It's really easy to take that same posture because maybe someone else, no one else is coming up to solve the problem, and so we just tend to walk on by. And it tends to, for me at least, bring up the question when I look at the realities of our city and what God might be inviting me into to consider who it is that I'm walking by that God has invited me to actually walk to? Who is it that you tend to walk by that God is actually inviting you to walk to? My hunch is there are neighborhoods that you don't go to, that you drive by. There are streets maybe you don't even cross, or you don't cross at night, or you don't feel welcome in certain neighborhoods in certain parts of town around certain groups of people. And it's really easy to assume, you know, kind of that distance there, and, well, that's for someone else. Maybe for you, there's whole groups of people, like, I don't know, I don't have anything to relate to, I didn't grow up in that story, I don't know their story, and I'm just gonna keep on walking by. But could it be, could it be, that maybe, in fact, the whole reason you're here this weekend is that the people that you've been walking by may actually be the people God is inviting you to walk to, to actually walk to, like we're about to see in this story. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, 
third person, third character, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, Jesus chooses a shocking hero to be the savior of the story in this case. He chooses a Samaritan. Now, contextually, Jews hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. They saw them as half-breeds, unworthy of God's love, unworthy of God's mercy. And so they were incredibly cruel to Samaritans. Jews were incredibly cruel to Samaritans, as people groups all around our world and even in our city still today can be with whole groups of people. And Jesus, I love this, deliberately chooses the person they liked the least to be the one he said you should be most like. He chose a Samaritan to be the hero of the story. That would be like Jesus coming today and telling the story in a room full of Bears fans and making the hero a Packers fan. And Jesus would tell the story that, lo, behold, a cheesehead was walking down the road. You would say, Jesus, why? Like you wouldn't understand. Why would he do this? Well, that's what he did. That's what he did. He said a Samaritan actually is the one who gets it, gets it all Right, verse 34, look what he does. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now look at the pattern again, that see, go, and do pattern. What does he see? He sees someone in need. Where does he go? Does he walk by him, get in the past lane of his problems? He goes right to him. And what does he do? He takes care of him. He does something. He gives of himself. And Jesus gives real specifics. Do you notice that Jesus said there that he bandaged up his wounds? Where do you think those bandages came from? You think like he traveled with the first aid kit in the side of his donkey just in case? Most likely the bandages came from him tearing up his own cloak and making bandages with it. It says that he poured oil and wine on his wounds. Now, that's a really specific detail, Jesus. What was Jesus doing? Well, he knew the context. He was in a room full of religious leaders, and oil and wine were central to temple worship. There wasn't a religious leader in that room that hadn't worked with or represented the power, the presence, the peace of God through oil and wine. And Jesus says, yeah, look what he did with it. He actually took those ceremonial things and made them about someone's healing he says that he put him on his own donkey, that he actually literally bore the burden of this stranger. He didn't just kind of throw a quarter in the cup. He took him on. That would be like you taking someone in your car. And because it was a donkey, not on your car, it's a different context, in your car, and taking care of him. That's what he does. Now look, he keeps going. The extra mile, verse 35. The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Look at what he does. He serves and he gives of himself, both physically and financially. To denarii, probably somewhere in the ballpark of up to two months' salary that he gave to say, I want to take care of the stranger. He didn't know him. I want to take care of this stranger. He gives of himself. And then Jesus pauses to let his listener know that story time is over. And he looks in the eyes of the religious leader who had asked him, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus asks this question. Which of these three do you think was a what? Was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of Robbers? Verse 37. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Again, won't even say Samaritan. The one who had 
mercy on him. And he realized in that moment that the trap he'd set for Jesus had now turned on himself. Verse 37, continuing on, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. If there were mics in the first century, this is the moment Jesus would have dropped it. Like, and I'm out, like dropped a scroll. I don't know, did he drop a scroll? I don't know what he did, but he dropped something and walked out of the room at that moment. Go and do likewise. Yep, you got it. Once again, you answered correctly. The person who shows mercy to the stranger, to the neighbor, to the one in need, that's the one who gets it. That's the one who gets it. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it must have been like for those religious leaders to hear Jesus say that they should be more like the, per- the person, the people they liked the least? What a challenge for us as well to go and do likewise, not to just talk about it because religious people love to talk about the problems of the world and how we need to help and it's great and it's important to talk about it, but to actually be about it and to be great neighbors of the people that God has placed us in proximity with, to not see our neighbors as someone else's problem, to not walk by, but to actually walk to. And so as we consider that all-important question, who is my neighbor? I think God's invitation to each of us is really clear. If you're asking, well, I wonder who that is for me. Who's my neighbor? God would say, go and find out. Go and find out. Talk to friend, have a conversation with. Question for you, just real quick. I want you to think about where you live. If you live in a condo building or apartment building, think about your building. If you live in a home, I want you to think about your block. How many names of the people that live in proximity to you do you know? How many of their names do you know? Now, some of you have been living in that home for a long time, so maybe you know a lot. Awesome. But keep pushing a little further out. Do you know their names? Do you know their kids' names? Do you know their stories? What would it look like for us to go and do likewise, to go and show love and mercy and kindness and openness and generosity to the people that God has placed us in proximity with? Not long ago, um, one of our neighbors, I had an interaction with one of our neighbors that I I had known tangentially, like kind of known for a while, but I really got to know him on this day. Um, It was a high school student who lived across the way from us, and they were locked out from their house, didn't have a cell phone, and uh, it was raining outside, and he couldn't get in, and so he came banging on our front door. Now, I had just gotten home with the kids. We were just kind of getting started in the whole homework routine, and so I went down, and I let him in. He'd never actually been in our house before, so I let him in, and he came up. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm locked out of my house. I don't know where my parents are. I don't have my cell phone. Is it okay if I kind of hang out here for a minute until I can figure out what to do? I said, yeah, come on in, come on in, come in. So he comes in and comes upstairs, and we had just finished, like, our afternoon snacks, you know, with our kids, and he's a high school kid. I don't know. I'm like, do you want a snack? Do high school kids eat snacks? I don't know how this, we haven't gotten this far yet. I don't know what to offer you in this moment. So I was like, we have some pretzels and goldfish. Will that do? Because that's how we roll. And so he kind of plopped down there, and I let him use my phone, and he got a hold of his dad. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, yeah, I'll be home in about an hour or so. Can you just hang tight there? And he's like, "Uh, yeah, I guess so. So he's just hanging tight with us while we're going through our routine. And he ended up actually helping Elijah with his homework that afternoon. So he's kind of helping Elijah with his homework. He goes to Whitney Young High School here in the neighborhood. So he's a pretty smart kid. So he's helping Elijah with his homework. And then we have a piano in our home. And then after the homework was done, he just kind of went to our piano and started playing. And I was like, okay. I don't, 
I guess that's next after snacks and homework is piano time. And so our kids kind of sat down there with them and he just was teaching them piano and playing piano. He's an incredible piano player, so he's playing piano for them. And then eventually his dad got home and came over. And again, I'd had a few conversations with his dad over the years and came to the front door. He's like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. And gave his son this key and his son thanked us and went on home. And I thought that was kind of it. But then the dad stepped into our entryway. I was like, is it your turn now? Like, I didn't know if there <laughs> always has to be one of them in our home. Did we, is there some deal I didn't know about? And so he's like, he's like, hey, he starts talking to me. I really want to thank you. And he starts opening up. And so we go to the table and sit down and he begins to tell me like what it means to me that I would do that for him. I'm like, oh, that's nothing. That's just being a neighbor. He's like, well, no, here's what it means to me. And he began to break it down. And, and then we got into his story. 30 minutes later, we're still talking. And he told me about how he'd been in a bicycling accident the summer before and had been in the hospital for three weeks, had suffered some brain damage because of it. I had no idea. He'd been living 50 yards away from me. And I didn't know anything about what was going on in his life. And so we talked a little bit. I told him all about you guys and about this church. And they've yet to ever come here, but it was fun to be able to brag about you and talk about you to him. And then we kind of wrapped up and he thanked me again and told me how much it meant to him that I would let his son hang out in the house. And I thought, well, that's, you know, my thought was like, well, that wasn't hard. That was easy. And I think that's the thing we often forget when it comes to being great neighbors. It's actually not that hard. It's easy. You open up your home, you open up your life, you open up your heart, you hear their name, you hear their story, you go and do likewise. God's big plan to redeem the world, God's big plan to redeem the city, do you know how it often starts out? It's small. It starts small. It starts with you and your neighbors. Now, I don't want to be a church that says, we love our neighborhood, but we don't know and love our neighbors. And so since we're in school, I thought we could take a small, easy next step, a little homework assignment, if you will, so if you'll grab your little syllabus out of your cubby, you can write this down. We're going to do a little homework assignment. Here's your assignment this week. Your assignment is to have one meal with a neighbor. Now, it doesn't have to be this week because maybe you want to justify why you're so busy and you can't do it this week. That's fine. All I'm asking you to do is have a conversation with one neighbor this week where you set up a time by the end of this month to have a meal. Cool? That's it. Now, here's what's really fun. Memorial Day is at the end of this month. That's easy. Grill out. Couldn't be any easier. You are teed up for a great time. And maybe for some of you, you're do, you, I know a lot of folks who do a great job of this. You know your neighbors. They're part of your community. So what would it look like for you to just throw a party at your house Memorial Day, that Monday, and invite all your neighbors to come? And don't, listen, don't be weird. Okay, can I just, you don't have to do a Bible study or like show them one of these sermons. You don't have to be weird. It's easy. Just be a good neighbor. Just have people into your home and hear their story and start there. Start small and just see what God does to expand your heart as he expands his love through you just neighboring well. Can we all do that? Can we make it our assignment this week to have one conversation? I already know we know who ours is going to be, and we've been meaning to have her over for a long time. And so now this is our little prompt to say, Joan, come on over. We want to have you over for a meal. It's not hard, but this is how God's love spreads through this world. It's through little things like this, through us being good neighbors. So I want to pray for you towards that end. I'd ask if you would please to 
stand up and we're going to close our time of prayer. If you want to open your hands up, you can do so. Uh, we take a posture of prayer with open hands, and so you want to open your heart and open your hands to pray. I would love to do that. Let's pray together as we close out our time together. God, thank you for the reality of your love, which has transformed and changed this world. And God, thank you for this incredible story that Jesus gave us to cross lines, to cross streets, to open up our doors, to give of ourselves, to be good no, to be great neighbors. And God, I pray that that would be true of our church, that we would have a reputation throughout this city, that we're great at neighboring, and that we love the people that you've placed around us really well. And so God, I pray for every conversation, whether we feel nervous or excited, God, I pray for every meal that's been, that will be shared, that we'll share our lives and our story, and that your love and your kingdom will advance that much more because we go and do likewise, just as you've taught us to do today. And so God, I pray for our church as we do so. It's in your name that we pray.